Is God among us or not? Is God among us or not? Maybe you've desperately blurted out that question recently. Maybe you're wondering about that this morning. I suspect that the church in Ukraine is wrestling with that question even now. We wonder from time to time what God's doing in our life as we wrestle with life in a world that's been broken by sin. Israel's been two months wandering in the desert since that great event that God ushered them through the Red Sea. And for two months they've been wandering. And it's a desolate desert that they're wandering through filled with genuine threats. In chapter 17, verses 1 through 7, we find the third of three grumbling accounts that Moses records for us in this section of Exodus. First, they had no water. Then they had no food last week. And today we'll find that they run out of water again. See, in the wilderness, God's people are constantly moving from camp to camp. And their life is legitimately difficult. Life between Egypt and the land of Canaan is filled with with genuine threats to God's people. And Israel asked this question in verse 7 this morning, is God among us or not? But life in the wilderness is not wasted. It's not a meaningless desert detour. It's not accidental and it's not random. The wilderness is intentional instruction and discipling from the Lord. The people of Israel don't know him yet. They know about him, but they don't know him. They don't trust him. They don't know enough to depend on him. They don't know that God's the only one that they can trust. He's the only reliable anchor they have. And in the wilderness, God's people become convinced. Convinced that he's powerful, that he's wise, and that he's good. And church, I want us to see this morning that this is our reality too. Israel's hardship comes between, the wilderness, between redemption from slavery in Egypt and this promised land flowing with milk and honey that God held out before his people. Our hardship comes between our redemption from sin and death and our eternal home. And it's in this in-between time, in this wilderness, that we experience life in a world broken by sin and scandalized by death. And these hardships that we face, these various trials can tempt us to grumble and to complain because the hardships are painful. And so we must ask, what is God doing in the wilderness? And what we'll see this morning that he's demonstrating that he's the rock sustaining us and that we can move from grumbling to rejoicing to the degree that God works this truth into our hearts and we're persuaded That we're not just a ship being tossed around, but that God is showing us something in the wilderness. He's at work. And so we're going to take this in two parts this morning. The first is to look at Israel in Sinai and then look at the church in the world. Look at chapter 17 of Exodus, verse 1. All the congregation of the people of Israel moved on from the wilderness of sin by stages. Last week when Pastor Juan David preached, we were in the wilderness of sin where God provided manna and quail. And now in the months following, God is leading the people incrementally away from the wilderness of sin to some new location. According to the commandment 
of the Lord. God is the one leading Israel from place to place. And they camped at Rephidim, but there was no water for the people to drink. We're back to no water about two months after the first time. And again, it's a genuine threat. This isn't a want. This is a need. The people need to drink if they're going to survive their wilderness wandering. Look at their response in verse 2. Therefore, the people quarreled with Moses and said, give us water to drink. And Moses said to them, why do you quarrel with me? Why do you test the Lord? This is a heated exchange. The people come to Moses and say, Moses, give us water. They're quarreling with him. They're they're looking at him, the, the person they can see, the leader that they can interact with. And they're saying, give us water. And Moses presses back on them and says, listen, I'm not the one leading this show. I'm not the one calling the shots here. God has been leading us. He's been leading us in a pillar of cloud by day and a pillar of fire by night. Your quarrel is not with me. Your quarrel is with him. And why do you test the Lord? Verse 3, but the people thirsted there for water. And the people grumbled against Moses and said, why do you bring us up out of Egypt to kill us and our children and our livestock with thirst? Moses, you might be right, but we're thirsty. We need water to drink. And so they grumble against Moses. Moses and Moses tells them, you're really testing God. You're putting God to the test. This isn't merely a humble lament, a humble prayer, or a humble acknowledgement of the difficulty of circumstances. They take it to God and say, why did you bring us up out of Egypt to kill us and our children and our livestock with thirst? And so Moses cried out to the Lord in verse 4, what shall I do with these people? They're almost ready to stone me. Now, what's going on in Israel's hearts that leads them to forget what God has just accomplished? Israel loves their freedom from slavery and Egypt. Israel loves the fact that God brought these 10 fantastic plagues that rendered Egypt useless and delivered them from Egypt. Israel loves the fact that God ushered them through the Red Sea and judged the Egyptian army. They love God's past faithfulness. Israel also loves God's future promises. They love the fact that God is bringing them to a land flowing with milk and honey, a land of bounty where they can rest completely from their enemies. They love God's past faithfulness. They love God's future promises. They don't love God's present leadership. They don't love how God is leading them through this time of wilderness wandering. They say yes to redemption from slavery. They say yes to a future land of promise. And they say no way to the present leadership of the Lord in the wilderness. They don't want the cost of depending on God through trials. Your past faithfulness, good. Your future promises, good. Your present leadership is not good. We don't like the scarcity. We don't like not knowing where we're going to drink next or eat next. We don't like depending on you every morning and wondering if you're going to bring the manna again. We want to see our provision. We want to see the water and know that we can drink whenever we need to. They're rejecting dependence on God. So they grumble and they grumble and they quarrel with Moses to the point that he fears they'll stone him. Now, some of us struggling with repetitive sins. 
sins that we're constantly coming back to over and over again, need to hear this morning that God is not like you and me. You see, at this point, I'd be ready to start over. Let's find a new people. Let's get rid of these Israelites and start over. But God's not like you and me. In Psalm 103, 13, as a father shows compassion to his children, so the Lord shows compassion to those who fear him. Why does God show compassion on us? Verse 14, for he knows our frame and he remembers we are dust. God understands how hard it is for us to live by faith. He knows what he's asking of creatures to live trusting a creator they can't see. A creator, they, they see, we see his provision, we see his faithfulness, but we can't see him. And he knows how difficult it is for us to live by faith. He remembers our frame. He knows that we're like dust. And so God's reaction is compassion. And in verses 5 through 6 of chapter 17, he acts. The Lord said to Moses, Pass on before the people, taking with you some of the elders of Israel, and take in your hand the staff with which you struck the Nile and go. Moses, take the staff that you used to strike the Nile and turn it into blood. Take some of the elders of Israel and go before the people. Verse 6. Behold, I will stand before you there on the rock at Horeb. Literally, I will take my stand on the rock at Horeb. And you shall strike the rock and water shall come out of it and the people will drink. And Moses did so in the sight of the elders of Israel. Now, Moses hasn't traveled very far, probably. But he moves on to Horeb with some of the elders of Israel and God takes his stand upon the rock at Horeb. So if you can envision this, you see God in a cloud that's guarding his presence from his people and he's standing on top of this rock and God tells Moses, strike the rock. Now imagine Moses. God, you want me to do what now? You're going to stand on the rock and you want me to swing this staff and hit this rock and literally smite the rock, destroy the rock, crush the rock. Aaron, you want to take this one? You know, imagine Moses. Imagine him moving toward the rock, but he does it. And he destroys the rock and water comes out and the people of Israel drink. But why does God do it like this? I think it's to show us how personally and tenderly God sustains his people in times of wilderness. God is personally invested in the provision we need. God himself is the source of water. He makes it clear that the water is coming from him. He's paying a cost for this water. He's the one sustaining them. And Paul picks this up in 1 Corinthians 10. And he writes this. I don't want you to be unaware, brothers, that our fathers were all under the cloud and all passed through the sea and all were baptized into Moses in the cloud and in the sea and all ate the same spiritual food and all drank the same spiritual drink for they drank from the spiritual rock that followed them and the rock was Christ. Paul is making the point that God himself specifically Jesus himself, is the rock from which this water flows. And not only did the rock 
provide water on that day, the rock stood up and followed them throughout the wilderness. For 40 years, the rock of Christ is sustaining God's people in the wilderness personally. He's watching over them. He's leading them. He's guiding them. In Deuteronomy 1.31, we read this. In the wilderness where you have seen how the Lord your God carried you. As a man carries his son all the way that you went until you came to this place. Moses calls the place where the rock was struck Meribah and Massa because of the quarreling and the testing of God's people. And here's the test in verse 7. They ask this question. Is the Lord among us or not? Now they know that the Lord is among them. He's there in the cloud. He's there in the pillar of fire by night. They know he's present. The question they're really asking isn't about location. It's about character. What is God like? Is he good? Is he wise? Is he powerful? Can he meet this need and will he? Does he long to provide for us? God delivers Israel here in a way that they cannot ignore. They're going to forget it purposefully, but they can't ignore God's personal provision for them. But must God always show up so clearly and demonstratively for them to trust Him? Must God work so obviously every single time for them to trust His goodness and wisdom and power? Or will God's people grow into maturity as they walk with Him? So that even in times when God's hand is slight, when His sovereignty is mysterious, when His provision is hard to understand, will His people still resolutely trust Him? He's good. He's powerful. He's wise. Israel remembered God's past redemption of them from Egypt, and they said, Amen. As they thought about God's future promises of a land where they could rest from their enemies, a land of their own, they said, amen, we want that. When God leads them through this time of wilderness wandering, they say, no, thank you. And their heart is revealed in their grumbling. They don't like God's leadership. And their repeated failures in this area teach us that we need more of God than Israel had if we're going to rejoice instead of grumble. So let's think about the church in the world, from Israel in Sinai to the church in the world. Brothers and sisters, it's not hard to see ourselves in the story. For example, in Hebrews chapter 3, verse 5, we read that Moses was faithful in all God's house as a servant to testify to the things that were to be spoken later. Moses is pointing towards something that's going to be spoken by God later. But Christ is faithful over God's house as a son. And we are God's house if indeed we hold fast our confidence and our boasting in our hope. God has redeemed us from slavery too. Not from slavery in Egypt, of course, but from the power and penalty of sin and from sin's presence one day in the future. In Galatians 3.13,
Paul writes that Christ redeemed us from the curse of the law by becoming a curse for us. For it's written, cursed is everyone who's hanged on a tree. So that in Christ Jesus, the blessing of Abraham and his descendants might come to the Gentiles. That is, all ethnic groups beyond Jews. So that we might receive the promised spirit through faith. Hold on to that. The spirit through faith. That's the blessing that's coming, not just to Jews who trust Christ, but to Gentiles from every tribe and tongue and nation might receive the spirit through faith. God has redeemed us from slavery as well, and God has promised us a land. Not the land of Canaan flowing with milk and honey, but an eternal homeland. In my Father's house are many rooms, Jesus said. If it were not so, if there were not many rooms, would I have told you that I go to prepare a place for you? And if I go and prepare a place for you, I will come again and will take you to myself that where I am, you may be also. Or Hebrews eleven sixteen. But as it is, they, that is the brothers and sisters from the Old Testament who trusted God by faith, As it is, they desire a better country that is a heavenly one. Therefore, God is not ashamed to be called their God, for he has prepared for them a city. We've been redeemed from slavery. We've been promised an eternal homeland. And we say amen to redemption from slavery to sin. And we say amen to the promise of an eternal homeland. But what do we say in the wilderness? What do we say in this in-between time when Christ has made us sojourners, when he has called us out of this world? And this world is no longer our home, but we're headed home. We're now aliens and pilgrims. We're not residents. Jesus has called us out of the world, but has left us in the world so that we might proclaim him to the world. And so we experience the hardship And the persecution that comes from following Christ in a world that's hostile to him and broken by sin. And this wilderness living tempts us to grumble. We want the past redemption. We want the future homeland. We struggle with the wilderness. We don't really want the present suffering of wilderness living and so we're tempted to grumble. But God was doing something in the wilderness. It would eventually be a form of discipline for Israel to stay for 40 years, but it was also a time of tender fatherly instruction. For example, Nehemiah chapter 9, when Nehemiah thinks about the wilderness wandering, this is what he writes, You, God, in your great mercies, did not forsake them in the wilderness. The pillar of cloud to lead them in the way did not depart from them day By day, nor the pillar of fire by night, to light for them the way by which they should go. You gave your good spirit, hold on to that, to instruct them, and did not withhold your manna from their mouth, and gave them water for their thirst. Forty years you sustained them in the wilderness, and they lacked nothing. Their clothes did not wear out, and their feet did not swell. Christ the rock 
sustained his people through the wilderness. He carried them like a father carries a son to the point where their clothes do not wear out, their feet do not swell from walking, and they have everything they need. In the wilderness, God is weaning us away from finding life in this world to finding life in him alone. And how does he do this? How does Christ the rock sustain and nourish and provide for his people in the wilderness between redemption and our eternal glory? Here's Jesus in Jerusalem during the Feast of Tabernacles. John 7, 37. On the last day of the feast, the great day, Jesus stood up and cried out. And he's already in hot water with the Jews. But he stands up in the middle of this feast. Jerusalem is teeming and overflowing with people. And he cries out, If anyone thirsts, let him come to me and drink. Whoever believes in me, as the scripture has said, out of his heart will flow rivers of living water. Jesus says, You're thirsty, and there's nothing in creation that will quench your thirst. I've got eternal water that I can give you that will quench your thirst once and for all. Drink the water that I've come to give you. And what is the water? The Apostle John tells us in verse 39. Now this Jesus said about the Spirit, whom those who believed in him were to receive. For as yet the Spirit had not been given because Jesus wasn't yet glorified. Do you see what Jesus has done? He claims to be the source of living water. He's not the water, but from him flows the water. He's the rock. When struck, the water comes and gives water to God's thirsty people. Jesus pours out the Spirit. Now, for a couple minutes, I want us to just think about what the, who the Spirit is and what he's come to do. And I want to frame this for us with two phrases— Promises made and promises kept. There were promises made in the Old Testament by the prophets, and there were promises made by Jesus himself while he was on the earth. The Spirit of God is a distinct third person of the Trinity, and he's existed eternally with Father and Son in happiness. And since creation, the Spirit has been actively at work in the world. But the Old Testament promised a new relational dynamic in passages like Ezekiel 36. I will give you a new heart and a new spirit and I will put within you and I will remove the heart of stone from your flesh and I will give you a heart of flesh and I'll put my spirit within you and I'll cause you to walk in my statutes and to be careful to obey my rules. And this is what Jesus promises to do. He's the rock, and he will provide living water to all who thirst. And when the living water, the Spirit, comes, he will give his people a brand new heart. And that heart of flesh that has replaced the heart of stone will cause God's people to walk according to his words and to obey all his rules. And this is what God wanted for his people. Back in Exodus 15, verse 26, God says, Be diligent to listen to my voice and do all that which is right in my eyes and give ear to my commandments and keep all my statutes. But Israel failed and they failed and they failed. 
because they had a heart of stone, because they're dead in trespasses and sins. And so when God brings them hardship, they grumble. They reject God's word. They don't trust God's promises. And so when Jesus comes, the rock, and promises the living water that will transform people, he's calling them to take on new hearts. John 14, 6. I will ask the Father, and he, disciples, will give you another helper to be with you forever. Even the Spirit of truth, whom the world cannot receive because it neither sees him nor knows him. But you know him, for he dwells with you and will be in you. He currently dwells with you and he will be in you. And in Acts 1.8, But you will receive power when the Holy Spirit has come upon you and you will be my witnesses in Jerusalem and in all Judea and Samaria and to the very ends of the earth. Promises made. Spirit coming. New dynamic between God and his people. God is not just with you. God will be in you. God will indwell you and empower you in a way that's totally different. In a way that will come when Jesus returns to his Father. And so the promises are kept. In Acts 2, on the day of Pentecost, the disciples are gathered together in one place. And suddenly there came from heaven a sound like a mighty rushing wind. And it filled the entire house where they were sitting. And divided tongues as of fire appeared to them and rested on each one of them. And they were all filled with the Holy Spirit and began to speak in other tongues as the Spirit gave them utterance. And they pour out of the home. And the crowd that's there from all over the Roman Empire thinks they're drunk. And Peter takes his stand and proclaims that this is not a drunken party. This is promise fulfillment. And so he quotes the prophet Joel to that whole crowd of Jews. In the last days it shall be, God declares, that I will pour out my spirit on all flesh. And your sons and your daughters shall prophesy and your young men shall see visions and your old men shall dream dreams. And it shall come to pass that everyone who calls on the name of the Lord will be saved. Anyone who's thirsty, come to me and drink, and I will give you streams of living water. Jesus the rock will be crushed, and out will flow the Spirit to all who call on his name and believe. And those hearts of of stone will be replaced with hearts of flesh, so that grumbling hearts can turn to joyful hearts. The Spirit is coming in power. And if you want one word, to describe the work of the Spirit. You could probably think of other ones, but I'm going to give you the word guarantee. The Spirit is a guarantee. He's a guarantee that God's Word will be written. Jesus in John 14, the Holy Spirit whom the Father will send in my name will teach you all things and bring to your remembrance all that I have said. The Spirit writes God's Word down so we can read it. The Spirit guarantees our salvation. In 2 Corinthians 1, God has put his seal on us and has given us his Spirit in our hearts as a guarantee. The Spirit guarantees our work together, our disciple-making work. John 16, 8, when the Spirit comes, he'll convict the world of sin and righteousness and judgment. The church will proclaim and live according to the gospel, but it's the Spirit who will convict 
of sin and righteousness and judgment. The Spirit guarantees our gifts together as a body. 1 Corinthians 12, 7, to each Christian is given the manifestation of the Spirit for the common good, for the building up of the body. Two more. The Spirit guarantees our inheritance. Ephesians 1.13, In Jesus you also, when you heard the word of truth, the gospel of your salvation, and believed in him, were sealed with the promised Holy Spirit, who is the guarantee of our inheritance until we acquire possession of it to the praise of his glory. And last one, the Spirit guarantees our obedience. For example, Galatians 5.16, Walk by the Spirit and you won't gratify the desires of the flesh. When Jesus is raised, when he returns to the Father, he sends his Spirit in his place and says to the disciples in the church, it's to your advantage I go away so that the Spirit could come. And the Spirit is a guarantee of God's work among us. Here's Thomas Goodwin. Thomas Goodwin writes that the Spirit makes the heart of Christ real to us. He makes the heart of Christ real to us. Not just heard, but seen. Not just seen, but felt. And not just felt, but enjoyed. That's what the Spirit does with the heart of Christ. The Spirit moves us from theory to reality, from doctrine to experience. Here's Dane Ortland from his book, Gentle and Lowly. He gives this illustration. It's one thing to be told your father loves you. If you're told your father loves you, you, you know that to be true. You believe that. You take him at his word. But it's another thing to be swept up into your father's arms and to feel the warmth of his embrace and to feel your father's heart pounding in his chest to know the protective grip of his embrace. The Spirit takes the heart of Christ and helps us to know it, to be persuaded and convinced, to not just know true things about God and Christ, but to experience those things. The Spirit is a guarantee. The Spirit is the living water that Christ the rock has provided to all who believe. So as we move to a close, let's pull this all together. God has redeemed us from slavery to sin through faith in the gospel. Jesus has promised us an eternal homeland where his righteousness will reign. But between redemption and our homeland, we experience various trials, hardships, and persecution. Our bodies limp, our hearts sin, the world rejects, and creation groans. Life in the wilderness is legitimately hard. But what, what is God doing in the wilderness? Israel, in light of the hardship, asked the question, is God even among us? Is he among us or not? And then, in a resounding crash of a staff, Israel drinks the water that's come from Christ. And with another thunderous crash, Jesus the rock is crushed in our place. He's raised again to new life. He returns to his Father and he sends us a river of living water. No longer is, is the Spirit with his people. 
But the Spirit comes and indwells His people. The Spirit comes and makes His home in us. And so in the wilderness, the Spirit gives us the power to trade in grumbling for rejoicing. Knowing that the wilderness is not a mistake. It's not an accident. God's at work in the wilderness. The rock has poured forth his spirit. And so in the wilderness, the Holy Spirit calls people out of darkness into light. The blind see. The dead breathe. Because the spirit's at work in the wilderness. In the wilderness, the Holy Spirit transforms that people into the image of Christ. From one degree of glory to another. In the wilderness, the Holy Spirit uses His Word to strengthen, to guide, to comfort, to protect the church. In the wilderness, the Holy Spirit weans the church off of finding life in creation to find it instead in the Creator Himself. In the wilderness, the Holy Spirit teaches us how faithful and powerful and loving and beautiful God is. In the wilderness, the Holy Spirit uses the church to show the world how the gospel can transform a people. In the wilderness, the Holy Spirit fashions beauty out of ashes in every one of our lives as we hope in Him in the middle of trial. In the wilderness, the Holy Spirit empowers the church to incur any cost for the sake of making disciples of the nations. And in the wilderness, the Holy Spirit shows the church how precious God is. Whom have we in heaven but you? And on earth there is no one beside you. And so in 1 Peter chapter 1, Peter writes, In this you rejoice, though for now, for a little while, if necessary, you've been grieved by various trials, so that the tested genuineness of your faith, more precious than gold, gold that will perish when tested by fire, so that the tested genuineness of your faith may be found to result in praise and glory, and honor at the revelation of Jesus Christ. Church, Jesus is the rock who sustains us in the wilderness. He has poured out his spirit who is at work in our midst even now. From this point until we step on the shores of our eternal home, the spirit is with us. He is in us. He is empowering us for the work that Jesus left us here to do. Let's pray. Father, I thank you for sending Christ for our redemption. And Father, and Jesus, thank you for sending the Spirit to help us see the beauty of the gospel and respond by faith. Spirit, thank you for empowering us and sustaining us through life in the wilderness. Jesus, thank you for being our rock. We pray these things in your name. Amen.